Heavenly Father, draw us nearer. We have just sang that song to the cross where our sins are forgiven as we confess our sins to you this morning. It is through the blood of Christ that we are all forgiven, nothing but the blood of Christ. As I preach now this morning, Lord, be with me. I'm just a mouthpiece. You are the teacher, the Holy Spirit. Sanctify your people this morning. If there are anyone who's not your people, convict them of their sin and their need to confess their sins and surrender themselves to you to receive salvation. Now receive all the glory. Every word that I speak may be for your glory alone and that you will receive all the praise and glory that is due to you. I ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It is my privilege to be able to come before you to preach the word of God. I don't get many chances, so I want to make the best of it. But again, it's not my skills or my ability to teach, but it's for the God's glory and the Holy Spirit, again, is the one that will teach. Turn with me now to the Gospel of John. I'm going to look at most of chapter 4 this morning. But before we get into today's text, I want you to think about these two things as I teach this morning in my sermon. Number one, as we study carefully, verse by verse, the story of this great salvation story of the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well, I want you to pay close attention to see if you can see God's election involved in this story, how she is saved. Is she saved by election or is it free will? And second thing is related. And also I want you to know that this election that God uses to save this woman is election of great love involved. I just want you to appreciate and see how much Jesus loves this woman, and this election has great love involved. So again, before we get into the text, in order to talk about the story, we have to understand what election is. And I, have, I don't have time to go into very details about what election is, but I'll give you a brief summary. But before that, in order to understand that election is out of God's love, because a lot of people have problem with election. They think it's mean-spirited, that there's absolutely no love involved, and a lot of people begrudgingly accept election because it isn't in the Bible. It's undeniable. So they say, yeah, it is in the Bible, but I don't love it. But I want you to love election. But in order to understand this great electing love of God, we need to understand why is the electing love of God great, and why does God choose election to save people? And in order to understand that, you need to understand what God's sovereignty is all about. Now, sovereignty is a word that I think is often misused by people. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, king is sovereign, you know, I am sovereign over my household or whatever. I mean, they want to be jerks like that. That's fine. But I want you to know only one person is sovereign, and that is God. Because sovereignty basically means God does whatever he pleases. That's what the Bible says. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Bible says. It means God will do whatever he pleases to do, and no one can thwart his plans, his actions. No one can argue with God why he shouldn't do those things. And the question is, why does God have this sovereignty? Is it because God is almighty, all-powerful, so you better believe what he says or your toast? No. There's a good reason why God is truly the only one that is sovereign. is because the Bible teaches that everything that is ever created, including human beings, of course, who has ever existed from Adam and Eve to the last person who will live and die on this earth, is created by whom? By God alone. And not only people, but animals, 
non-living things, this entire universe, everything that you see, everything that you cannot possibly conceive and see in your eyes or through your minds, God has created all those things, which means he has right to do whatever he wants to do. And as people, we are his. He owns us absolutely completely. So no one can say to God, you're unfair for choosing some people to be saved and bypassing others. Is this my opinion? No. Let me give you some text. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. I think it's pretty clear in Revelations chapter 13, 8, this idea of God's election, because it says, I'll read it to you, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, means the beast, everyone whose name has not been written, listen to this carefully, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So there's a book where everyone who has ever been saved or will be saved is already written in this book called The Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. So before God created anything, Jesus was going to come and die for our sins. God already knew this was his plan. And not only that, the names are already written before the foundation of the world. This is election. Now, some people might object People who believe in free will says, you know, Terry, what you just have read, I believe it, it's in the Bible, but this is not election to me. You know what this is? This is foreknowledge. See? Let me explain to you, Terry. God simply knows who will because God is omniscient. He knows from eternity to eternity. He knows who will worship him and give their life to him. So God already written down out of foreknowledge. That's a pretty compelling argument. What do I say to that? Well, we've got to look at Scripture. We go to Romans chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, I think explains that that's not what this text is talking about. It's not foreknowledge, but it's election. It says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, Romans chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. So what Paul is saying, God told Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, when she was pregnant, before they were born, that the older would serve the younger before they had done anything at all, before they were even born. So it's not based on good works or what they're going to do in the future after they're born. You see what God is saying here? It's not based on what they're going to do. Not because they're going to make a good choice as they get older to love God. God doesn't say, as I look into the future, I saw how Esau despised his birthright and sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And that's why I'm choosing Jacob over Esau. He doesn't say that. Before they had done those things, God chose Jacob over Esau. So this is the electing love of God. It's not just foreknowledge, but it's the electing love of God. And also the Bible states that the electing plan of God is based on his love. And the scripture plainly says that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I think someone might say who believes in free will of God says this. 
Um, as human beings, you're saying that how can God only choose some people and not save others? So that is unrighteousness. What if, let me ask you this, what if God did not choose election to save people and by free will, let's say, for argument's sake, that God saves people? How many people do you think will be saved? Any guess? I think the answer is zero. And, I, and that's not my opinion again. I, the Bible says that. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says this. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you notice Paul emphasizes that no one is righteous, not even one. So if someone says, I deserve to be saved, or someone deserves to be saved, the Bible says, no one deserves to be saved. No one is righteous. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 24, again, Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Again, the word gift there. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So again, basically, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God means no one is able to be saved by their merit. They have all fallen short of the standard that God has placed in order to be saved. And again, the answer is, the, the last part says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's only through Christ Jesus that anyone is saved. Now, I'm gonna to read to you Ephesians chapter one, verse three through five. This is where um, we're going to see that the electing love of God is indeed a loving thing that God has designed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's talking about election again that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So this election was found in love. He predestined all of those people who will be saved. Now let's look at today's text here. Chapter 4, verse 1, we begin. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus is on the move. So he's moving from Judea to Galilee. That's plain to understand. Now, verse 4 it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Let's stop there. This is the beginning of the story of the salvation story of the woman at the well. And this is the beginning of how election is in the works here. Again, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's a very interesting statement, a short statement that I don't know if John had to include there, but he does include there. And let's ask, logically, did Jesus have to go through Samaria for any reason? I mean, Jesus is God. He doesn't have to go anywhere if he doesn't want to. And besides, going to Samaria, having to go through Samaria is kind of perplexing for Jews to try to understand and comprehend. Because, if you guys know, Samaritans were despised people. You guys know the story of the Samaritans? I'll give you a brief description of why 
the Jews absolutely despised the Samaritans? The, Samar the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were the Jews who lived in the region of Samaria during the Assyrian captivity. They intermarried with some of the foreigners during that time. So in the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were not Jewish at all due to their racial impurity. Furthermore, the Samaritans being influenced by the foreigners that they married were heavily influenced by their idolatry as well. Many Samaritans practiced a bizarre form of half-Judaism and half-paganism. The Samaritans also only believe the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. So some commentators even said that many Jews hated the Samaritans more than any other people. Now that's a statement. So most Jews, especially a person like rabbi, like Jesus was, a religious leader, teacher, would purposefully avoid going into Samaria. They would go around. There were different ways to get to Galilee. He didn't have to go th through Samaria. But it is, in it is inter interesting to note, though, that some of the Jews did go through Samaria in cases of where time was an issue. For example, they had to get to Galilee by a certain time to be with some family member, or they had some kind of appointment, so begrudgingly, they would go through Samaria. But other than that, most people would avoid Samaria at all costs. They so despised the Samaritans that even the dirt that they would tread on with their sandals was something that they didn't want to do. That's how much they despised the Samaritans. So for John to say he had to go to Samaria, we need to pay attention, why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? And the rest of the story will, I think, give explanation, the answer. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. So let's stop there. So what's happening? So Jesus has come to Samaria, and he's by Jacob's well. And from his journey, he was wearied. So we see the humanity of Jesus here. Even though he was fully God, he was also fully man. And he was tired, you can understand, from a long journey. So from his weariness, he's sitting beside the well. And John mentions it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour means it was about noon. It's a Jewish way of calculating what time it was from six o'clock in the morning. I don't know why they did that, but I guess most people woke up at six o'clock. I'm not sure, but that's when they counted. So from sixth hour, you add that, it was about noon. Six plus six equals 12. It's about noon, and that's important, and you'll see why as we read on. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And verse 8 says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So let's stop there, and let's talk about verse 7 and 8. So it is interesting, a woman, a single woman came from Samaria to draw water. And why is it strange? Because if you knew the customs of that time, drawing water by the woman of the village was sort of a kind of gathering thing where many women would go together. And they would usually go early in the morning or late in the afternoon to avoid the hot heat. So no one would go around noontime. But this woman, alone, comes to draw water at noon, the hottest time of day, and she's all alone. And we're going to see why that is important in this story here. And Jesus sees her, and she, he speaks to her and says, give me a drink. And I'm sure Jesus was thirsty from his long journey. He was wearied. 
And you notice, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is all alone with this one single Samaritan woman. This is God's design. This is providence. Do you think all the disciples had to go buy food? You guys know this, right? I mean, you work at a company, and someone's willing to pick up food and make people make the orders. Depending on how many people, maybe one or maybe two, or maybe three people might go to pick up the food, right? But not everybody has to go. But every disciple that was there, at least 12, maybe there have been more, who knows, they were all sent away by Jesus to buy food. So you can see this intentionality from Jesus. He wanted to be alone with this woman at this particular hour. And Jesus, of course, being God, knew that this Samaritan woman would be alone. She would come by herself. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John explains this. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I will explain to you why. This is a shocking thing for the Samaritan woman to hear this Jew talking to her, asking for water. Not only because she's a Samaritan, and I will explain to you why Jews despise the Samaritans, but the fact that she's a woman as well. And for our modern people like today, we're kind of like, what's the big deal? She's a woman, so what? Jesus is asking for water. You know, he's not flirting with her or anything like that. What's the problem here? Why is she surprised that he's talking to her when she's a woman? Well, I did some research, and during that time, back in those days, especially for rabbis, they wouldn't even speak to their wife in public or their daughter or their sister. So to, to speak to a stranger would have been shocking, to say the least. So you notice from the very beginning, Jesus is overcoming obstacles that is in the way of this woman to receive salvation. And briefly, let me ask you about this. You guys know the story of the rich young ruler, right? This is the total opposite. I'm just amazed when I think about those two stories. So here's a Samaritan woman who is socially unacceptable. She's a woman. Jesus has no business talking to her. She didn't ask for this. It's Jesus who starts the conversation. Jesus is seeking her. Total opposite story in the story of the rich young ruler. You guys remember that story, right? I'm not going to go into details, but this rich young ruler, which means he is a ruler of a synagogue, so he's a Jewish man who is actually seeking Jesus. He's a very religious person. And he is seeking Jesus, why? Because he wants eternal life. He has everything. He's rich, he's young, he's a respected man of Jewish community. He doesn't have any needs except he knows in his heart he's not saved. He has no salvation. So he deliberately seeks Jesus. And in that story, he kneels down before Jesus and says, Rabbi, good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? He doesn't mess around. He is there seeking eternal life. And Jesus asked him, well, you know the commandments? Keep the commandments. And he says, I have kept those since my youth. I think outwardly, he is speaking the truth. Inside heart, I'm sure he lusted after a woman and all those things. He broke all the commandments in his heart. But outwardly, I think he was blameless. Because Jesus doesn't say, you're hypocrite. It's not true. So he was a religious man, morally upright. And you guys know the rest of the story. He walks away sad because Jesus said, sell everything you have. There's one thing you're lacking. Sell everything you have. You follow me. And Jesus gives him the invitation. You want eternal life? Come, follow me. And he walks away from Jesus. He is seeking Jesus. And he does not find eternal life. But here's the Samaritan woman. She's not seeking eternal life. She's not interested in anything Jesus has to offer. But we see in the rest of the story, she's saved. So that should be shocking to you. Let's move on. Verse 10, after 
The Samaritan woman says, why are you talking to me? You're not supposed to do that. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus, from the very beginning of the conversation, he's not chit-chatting, he's not talking about the weather, how things are going with you. He gets right down to her need, and that is eternal life. You see how he's speaking to her? This is salvation language. What does he say? If you knew the gift, what gift? Gift of salvation. Jesus speaking to her from the very get-go, I want to save you. If you knew the gift of God, that is eternal life, and if you knew me who is saying to you, give me a drink, if you knew me, the Savior, the Messiah, she doesn't know him yet. You're going to see that. It's pretty obvious. He says, you would have asked him. You would ask me, and I would have given you living water. So obviously, Jesus is speaking about spiritual things, right? For most people will know this immediately. But look at the response of the Samaritan woman here in verse 11. This is a worldly woman who has no spiritual bone in her body. Look at her response. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You see, she's totally clueless. She's looking at Jesus. She has the bucket to draw water, and Jesus has no bucket. And she says, where are you going to get the living water? You have no bucket. Is there some other well? Even there is, where are you going to get this living water? You don't have anything to draw the water with. She's just so on the surface, worldly. She has no spiritual connection whatsoever, what, what Jesus is saying. Have you known people like that when you're trying to witness to people? They're speaking spiritual truth and there is just glazed look on their eyes. They're clueless to what you're saying. It's heartbreaking. Same thing is happening here. But Jesus is patient. He doesn't give up, say, you know, get out of here. You know, you, you have no hope. He says, in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So at least she's recognizing this. So when Jesus is offering her this living water, she's assuming that Jesus is saying, I have something better than the water from the Jacob's well. So she's curious and says, are you saying you're greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus' answer is, not directly, but indirectly, he says, yes, 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 over and over again. Listen to what he says here. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. So he's saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob because the water that I'm offering you is greater water. Yes, I am greater than Jacob. Because the water that you drink from this well, everyone gets thirsty again. And you have to come back time after time to draw water again. But look what he says. Water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. You'll never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So obviously, he's saying, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Jacob can only quench your thirst for a while. And that's all he can give you is some water to quench your thirst. I have water that leads to eternal life. So Jesus speaks plainly here. She, he answers her question indirectly. Yes, I am greater than Jacob. And listen carefully. 
for the second time, the water that I'm offering you is not physical water. It's a metaphor. I'm offering you eternal life. And he, said, he used the word eternal life. How plain can Jesus be here? There's no beating around the bush. Jesus is direct. And he tells her, I'm offering you eternal life. Do you, do you want eternal life? And look at this woman's response again. This is unbelievable. Then again, you might know people like this. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Isn't that amazing? She's still thinking about surface-level physical satisfaction of drinking water. And she's saying, you know, I'm tired of coming here by myself at noon each day when it's hot because all the women in the village, they know who I am. Five times married woman, now living with boyfriend. They make fun of me. They gossip. I'm sick and tired of it. I don't want to come to draw water in this wall if I don't have to. So you have this water that I never have to draw water again? Sign me up. This woman is a perfect candidate for infomercials today. This woman will buy everything. doesn't matter. This is her spiritual level. Zero. And what is Jesus' response after that? Again, he is patient. He is seeking her like a heat-seeking missile. And she's the target, and he's not going to let her go here. Look at verse 16. And this seems like totally out of the place. But you see how it's related to, this is all part of Jesus' plan. Because Jesus knows when he says this, she's going to say this, and he's going to say this, and she's going to say this. Watch this. This is beautiful. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. In verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. That's all she says. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, let's just break this down real quick here. Why is Jesus saying, bring your husband? Why? Jesus is confronting her sin. He's saying, basically, to this woman, your problem is the reason why I'm offering you eternal life and you don't get it is because you are so worldly. You're thinking if I find the right guy, Mr. Right, I'll have joy. I have peace. I have everything I need. I just need to find this right guy. And five times you realize there's no Mr. Right. And the guy you're living with now is probably a loser because you're not marrying him, right? So you're still looking. Still empty, still not satisfied. But because everything you're thirsting after is physical, worldly things, I must confront you about your sin. And that's why Jesus says, go bring your husband. Because he knows exactly what she's going to say. Being evasive, that's what she's doing. But Jesus is so kind here, saying, you are right in saying, I have no husband. You see the grace here that Jesus is displaying? Because he means to save her. That's why he is so patient and kind. And verse 9, after hearing this, this woman now kind of like, you know, shifting her thinking a little bit now, right? Look what she says. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I mean, you know things about my life that no one does. I mean, all the village people know, but you're a stranger. This is the first time I'm talking to you, and you know everything. So you must be a prophet. And then you notice how quickly she changed the issue. She's not here confessing her sins. Again, she's totally lost, spiritually dead. And she's embarrassed. I think most people would be. So she quickly shifts the focus from her and changes topic. She thinks, but she's not. Jesus has her where, exactly where he wants her to be. And she's going to talk about worship. 
Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people are out to worship. So he's asking a question to distract Jesus from the focus of her adultery, her failed marriages. And Jesus, again, is gracious here. And he says, you want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, say, you're still on the surface. You still think about worldly things. Worship is a great topic to discuss, but you have no clue what true worship is. It's not about mountain. Which mountain? Which temple you must go? And he explains here. So you worship the Father this way. Verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. So obviously, this woman does not know how to worship. That's why she's lost. And he says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, let's stop there. What is Jesus saying here? Salvation is from the Jews. Well, he's just speaking plainly about truth. God chose which nation to be his people? The nation of the Jews. So salvation started with the nation of Jew. And Jesus himself is a Jew talking to a Samaritan. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's plain, simple. But look, after he says that, he says, but, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus now speaking to her about spiritual truth. He said, you do not know what worship is. You do not know what salvation is, but I'm going to explain to you what that is. And he says, the hour is coming. And I think he's talking about the fact that he's going to die on the cross that hour. Often he says, my hour is not yet come. I think that's the hour that he's talking about. When he lays down his life, then you don't have to be a Jew. You can be a Samaritan, Gentile. Anybody can come to Christ in that hour, and it's coming. But this is glorious. He says, it's not only coming, but is now here. And this is where Jesus is saying to her, basically, you know, you're going to worship me in spirit and truth. You don't know it, but in just a few minutes, you will. And he talks about, you worship, the worship is not about which mountains, but it's about worshiping God in spirit and truth. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's stop there. What does Jesus mean by spirit and truth? I think there's two things here. Number one, when he says you must worship in spirit, it means the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a John MacArthur study Bible like I do, if you look at his commentary, he said that's not what he's talking about. So why am I disagreeing with John MacArthur? Because I think he's wrong. Now, you John MacArthur lovers, you know, don't cast stones at me, but hear me out here, okay? This is the reason why I think it is talking about the Holy Spirit. Because what's happening here in this story, this woman is obviously spiritually dead. What did Paul say? We're all dead in our trespasses and our sins. Dead people cannot know the truth. This woman is spiritually dead. So in order her to worship the Father in spirit, she must be born again. How does a person become born again? The Holy Spirit must come and do his work of regeneration. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here mainly. Because we already established so far that this woman doesn't get it spiritually at all. On her own, she is spiritually dead, blind, can't see, can't know. 
But God's going to change that. Jesus is going to change that by saying, I'm going to send my spirit now. The hour is here. Now you will know the truth. And the other word, the truth here, I think has two meanings. I mean, you have to know the Lord our God in truth, not in falsehood. That's obvious, right? That's why we study doctrines in our church. It matters, right? To know the truth. So you have to know the truth. And Jesus is speaking truth to her. But beyond that, I think there's a deeper meaning. Perhaps more importantly, I think Jesus is saying, what did Jesus say? I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, no one comes through the Father except through me, the truth. I think that's what Jesus means here, mainly. And I'm here, the truth. And the Holy Spirit, in conjunction, is working with me now to save your soul. And look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know. Now, she's kind of getting it now, I think. Yeah, She's turning a little bit. I think the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in her. And she said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And look at Jesus' response here. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is glorious. This is an amazing statement from Jesus because you find very few occasions where Jesus will actually reveal himself like that. Like, I am the Messiah. The majority of the people who came across Jesus did not get that privilege. You guys remember Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 13. I'll read it to you real quickly here. I know we're running out of time. That's always my problem. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to whom it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the ones who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see what Jesus is saying? To you, my disciples, you are chosen by me. Remember? Jesus said to the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So you are chosen by me. This is election again. Jesus speaking to them in in elective language here. And he says, the reason why I speak to them in parables and not to you in parables is because I don't want them to understand what I'm saying to them. That's hard to believe, right? loving Jesus who wants to save everybody but to many of them he will not reveal himself to them on purpose so that they don't understand they don't see they remain in their blindness this is God's judgment so when Jesus plainly speaks to the Samaritan woman I who am speaking to you is he and this is marvelous grace this is incredible love it's not just a matter of fact he's stating a fact This is crazy grace, crazy love that Jesus is showing this undeserving Samaritan woman. Okay, I have like so many verses now to finish in about five minutes. I'll do my best. Bear with me here. Uh, Verse 27. I think the rest of it is pretty self-explanatory, but just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You notice the change here. This woman, after Jesus revealed himself to her, I am he who is speaking to, is the Messiah. She has no more questions. She has nothing more to say to Jesus. She gets it now. She is saved. She understood that this is a Messiah, and she has no doubt, she has no other questions. But she cannot help herself because this incredible joy that has come into her life through that salvation, this great electing salvation, she has to tell other people. And the people that, that she's talking to, all the people in town, are people who hate her, who despise her, who avoid her, who see her as a sinner. 
So she was a person not only rejected by the Jews for being a Samaritan woman, but she was rejected by her own people. You talk about a person who's absolutely hopeless, alone, no hope of salvation. Wrong. She is saved because God overcomes all those obstacles because, again, he means to save her. And whatever God pleases, he does. No one can stop his plan. Nothing. So she's saved. Because of her, she goes out to the town. Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Because of the Samaritan woman, many people are interested. I mean, this sinner woman is talking nonsense. I don't know. Let's check it out. And they come to Jesus. And look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So again, you know, disciples are kind of similar like the Samaritan woman. They said, you have no bucket? They're like, how did he get food when there's no one else here? And 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, in Samaria, here's the harvest that you did not work for. I did it, but look, there's work to do here. So this is why Jesus had to come to Samaria. For the Samaritan woman's salvation for sure, but also for the salvation of many rejected Samaritans living in Samaria. So here's the answer. And look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. You see that? He stayed there two days. So we know that Jesus didn't have to go to Samaria because he had an urgent appointment in Galilee somewhere where he had to save time by not going around Samaria but directly through Samaria. That wasn't the case, because he stayed there two days. So we see this is definitely God's election involved. And many more believed because of his word. So Jesus spent those two days doing what? Preaching. Converting souls. That's what he was doing for two days, working. And finally, verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves directly from Jesus. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And the t- today's story finishes with that. This is amazing. So you see, my brothers and sisters, <laughs> we have uh, two minutes uh, for application. So just think about your, the greatness of your salvation. So many of you might be thinking here, is my salvation guaranteed? Should I have any fear or doubts? And my answer is absolutely not. Look at this Samaritan woman. She had no business of being saved. It was utterly impossible in so many different ways, yet Jesus saved her in a short amount of time. This is the electing love that is irresistible. Even if you say, I want to go to hell, if Jesus wants to save you, you will be saved. No one can resist his sovereign electing love. So you might say, okay, how do I know that I'm elect though? Where's the proof? I think the proof goes back to what Jesus said about salvation. Salvation, the water that I'm offering you, ma'am, is like a living fountain that flows each day. 
So that, that's why you're never thirsty. It's not because you drink this water, never drink again, you're never thirsty. Magic water, no. It's because you're drinking it every day of your life because it is in you. And this fountain is delicious. You can't get enough. And you're drinking it up day after day by studying the Word of God through prayer, meditation, thinking about glorious things that are above and not on earth. Is that your life? Can I get an amen? I'm getting worried here. Like silence. Like, no, what are you talking about? No, that's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're doing that, seriously, you know that the electing love of God has found you and you have nothing to fear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for your great electing love that is irresistible, that guarantees our salvation so we can have confidence to come into your presence day after day to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we have tasted the goodness of the water of life that leads to everlasting life. So we thank you. Continue to feed us with your word and your love. And we ask all these things happen for the sake of your glorious name, Jesus. Amen. So finally, benediction. It is inspired from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 10. May all of your elect who have received this amazing gift of salvation appreciate how great your love is toward undeserving sinners like us. You have res rescued us from eternal death through your great electing love. And by your great love, when once we were your enemies because of our many sins, you have turned us into your son through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. May your great name be praised forever. Amen. <laughs>